in the fall of 1939 as the looming prospect of a Second World War encroached upon the island of Great Britain. Nerves were high. People were fearful. And students at Oxford College were perhaps wondering what was the point of getting an education with war knocking on the door. In that fall, brilliant writer, thinker, C.S. Lewis, and what has become a famous lecture addressing those students at Oxford College, exhorted them to continue to remain steadfast in their studies because, as he wrote, the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Basically, he's saying, if you're waiting for a time for life to slow down and all of the conditions to make it more favorable for you to advance ahead in your studies, it never will. War has a way of exacerbating, intensifying those feelings. Yet, reality is always there. We are not at war today, thanks be to God. And yet I imagine that you, have do, you do have things that you carry into this room that confuse you or alarm you, that burden you as you consider your future. You perhaps have obligations that if they did not rest upon you, you feel as if I could give a lot more attention to the main things, namely my growth in the faith, if I didn't have this obstacle or this obligation that stood before me. Well, I cannot clear your schedules. I cannot remove your obligations, and that's not what Psalm 90 does. But what Psalm 90 does do is it actually enables us. It shows us how to navigate all of the obligations, all of the obstacles, whether, whether real or perceived, that stand before us. And how do we treasure God? How do we trust Him with our days when our days are overwhelming and when they're running us ragged. And what they do is they take our eyes and they show us. This Psalm 90, it shows us God's greatness and our smallness and then instructs us to resolve to live in the shadow of God's goodness. Let me say this again. Big idea, big argument that I want to put before you from Psalm 90. Understand God's greatness and your smallness and resolve to live in the shadow of God's goodness. I invite you to follow along as I read Psalm 90, verses 1 to 17. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place 
in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to, to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May God write these truths of his word upon our hearts. First, we must see God's greatness and our smallness. This is in verses 1 through 11. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you see an, an, an overall context for the passage, a context for understanding the people of Israel as they recite, as they hear this psalm. Interesting fact for you to know, of 150 psalms, this is the one, the single one, that was written by Moses. Most psalms were written by King David hundreds of years after Moses. So of all the psalms that we have in Scripture, this is the one that we know is the earliest that we have, written by Moses. And Moses writes as a representative of the people of Israel. So where he says in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, his mind is undoubtedly hearkening back to the stories told of God's faithfulness to Israel through that we read throughout Genesis. And then who can forget Moses' role in the Exodus and how the Lord raised him and his brother Aaron up, how the Lord brought plagues upon Egypt, how the Lord parted the Red Sea to deliver his people and ultimately led them on a course, a journey by which he was sanctifying them and shaping them and preparing them to enter the promised land. And so, Moses writes this psalm mindful of, remembering, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. This covenant faithfulness of God to his people. Perhaps that's the boat you're in now. You can look back on times in your life where you know the Lord has been your dwelling place. And you need that reminder yet again today. But then Moses 
as if he's pulling the scope back even further, giving us a more wide lens view, we not only see God as the dwelling place of the people of Israel, but he, he shows us God as the supreme creator and ruler over his universe. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. And then he says, showing his rule even over time, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Sets forth the course for this psalm, God's greatness and our smallness. He reveals this in a variety of ways, a variety of illustrations Verse 3, you return man to dust. A thousand years, verse 4, are in your sight, but as of yesterday, or, or a thousand years are but as yesterday when it is past, or a brief watch in the night. And then describing human life in verses 5 and 6, he talks of people as if we are a flood, or like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning and withers away and dies in the evening. God's word holds before us the temporal nature of our lives. It's a very pleasant thought, isn't it? This is something we all know. Perhaps we don't spend much time meditating upon this truth, but every parent or grandparent that gets teary-eyed at their child or grandchild's graduation and cannot help but think about how fast time flies, they know this. Life has a way of trying to dull us, dull our consciences, dull our minds to the fleeting nature of time. We emphasize the importance and the drama of this moment, of the present, forgetting how near the past is and forgetting how each day the future is encroaching step by step by step. Closer and closer. I think subconsciously as a culture, we busy ourselves, whether it be with work, with family, with soccer practice, with all of the obligations that we can carry. We busy ourselves for one reason, in order to occupy our minds so that we are insulated from stopping and thinking about how small we are and how fleeting time is. And yet what Moses puts before us is he shows us the brevity of time and of our lives. And so now he calls us in to say, okay, what are you going to do about this truth? How do you come to grips with the fact that you are a temporal being, a temporal person? All of us have an expiration date. And yet you have a God who reigns over all things. What do you make of that? Where does your heart turn with that? Culturally, we, we want to turn towards the ways that we can try to build ourselves up. Or to the ways to which we can protect ourselves from giving such deep thought without running cold on joy and of gladness in this moment. But what Moses shows us is that the brevity of our time 
can drive us towards the God who rules over time and captivate us with a joy that will fill our days. See, he goes, though, through an unconventional route. If he shows us the brevity of our lives, beginning in verse 7, he then shows us, in this essence, the reason for that brevity, the justice of God upon us. Verse 7, he says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. Perhaps you didn't expect that term. Moses basically says, our days are short, God, because you have designed it. And he doesn't, he doesn't say that in a manner of, of lashing out or of blaming God. He says it in a manner where he is aware of mankind, of the people of Israel, of his own sinfulness, his own rebellion against God. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Now you might read that language, God's anger, God's wrath, and you think, what, what do I make of that? How do I rationalize such notions with a God who is worthy of worship? If it is not manipulated, if it is not coerced, feeling like you people gather here to worship him, lest wrath fall out upon you. No, 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 no. We'll see that in a minute. But hold on to that thought of what does God do with his anger and wrath and how do we fit in there if we see that our days as human beings are cut short. God, the right, just judge, sets our iniquities before us, our secret sins in the light of his presence. You see, understand correctly, understood correctly, excuse me, verse 8, God setting our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence. This doesn't cause us to look at God with consternation, but causes us to look at ourselves with careful examination. You see, Moses is doing a wonderful job here of taking us through the hallway of God's greatness and us seeing testimony and seeing example of it and seeing exhibit of it, exhibit of it, exhibit of it. But then what he's showing us here is the greatness of God is not something that we hold off to the side and, and just observe like we do a painting in a museum. But the greatness of God is something that comes to us and forces us to reckon with our smallness. And the wonder of the Christian gospel, the wonder of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, is that our great God who rules over us has come to us. And here's what's fantastic about it. He comes to us and he doesn't get here and look at us and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize you had that going on. You know, you can imagine a couple that gets married and moves in together and they realize after sometimes a little while, sometimes not long at all, oh, there, there are things about you that I did not realize. That, I didn't, oh, you're that way? You, you do the dishes in that manner? It's a lot worse than dishes, right? It's hearts. It's emotions. It's responses. 
But whatever the case is, we all find surprises there. But the wonder of the gospel is God does not do this work and then come to us and find that he is surprised by us. No, verse 8 actually tells us he has set our iniquities before him. Our secret sins stand before him. And yet the wonder of the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ has come and in his atonement for our sins, he atoned for all of them. See, this is the glory and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for the you that you project out there for others. It's for the real you that stands behind in the shadows and is worried about being found out. So the invitation of the gospel, the invitation for your heart as you wrestle over the brevity of your life and the seriousness of your sinful offense against God is to come now before him and to say, Lord, you can have all of these things. You know them, and I can trust you that you will replenish, you will, you will make new your grace within me. But how does he do this, this, this brevity and justice? How does it come together? Well, it must come together by his great grace. This brevity, this justice is tied together in verses 9, 10, and 11. He writes, our days pass away under your wrath. You, you, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. We, we go out not with a bang, but with a whimper, is what he's saying. The year, our years are 70, maybe 80, and all they know are toil and trouble, and they are gone, and we fly away. Who gives thought to your anger, to your wrath according to fear of you? Well, there's an interesting Alistair McGrath quote that I read. I, I don't know if it was directly related to this passage. But he said, this sense of fear that assaults our human nature when we consider the brevity of our lives, it actually serves us well when it leads us to regard God as gently knocking at the door of our lives, reminding us that we are but tenants on a short-term lease. And so what Psalm 90 does is it knocks on the door of our lives and says it is going to end with a sigh with a whimper, 70 years, 80 years, maybe longer, maybe shorter. But the way that it all fits together is to recognize that this brevity, this shortness of it, and this need for justice over our sinful rebellion against God, these things must be mingled together. They must come to, they, they, they must find solution if we are to have any hope. And so what is the solution? Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see, what you find here is that in the grace of God, the, oper the, option, the, the, the offer from God to his people is to find that they can bring the fullness of their days, the burdens that they carry, the worries that perplex them, the, over, the over, uh, 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 overburdened calendars that weigh upon their shoulders. And Moses says, teach us to number our days. Give us wisdom for how to approach this. 
The answer to verses 1 through 11 is not despair, but awareness that would lead to delight. The answer to verses 1 through 11 is to find a way to understand life where we don't feel as if we're marching against a clock that is slowly ticking, but to find in which we are gliding with the winds of God's grace behind us, taking us home. And so how do we do this? We look at verse 8, our iniquities set before him. We look at how it tells us that the, the, the power of his anger and his wrath stands before us. How do we go from these to verse 14 to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days? For that matter, how do we get to 13? Return, O Lord. How long? How are they praying, God, come back when we know our sins stand before you? Well, the means by which we can pray this, the means by which we can hope this, is that we rest in the grace of God. What God has shown himself to be is the God who not only identifies and, and convicts us of our sin, the justice, the wrath, the, the right punishment rests over us, yet he provides redemption and rescue. He does so by his grace. And so verses 1 through 11 identify the life that is lived out of sorts, living as if this life is all that there is, knowing it's just a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. But then verses 12 to 17 says, wait, there is a grace that can wash over me, that can absolutely color my perspective of myself and of my life and of my world and of my whole future and eternity that reorients how I navigate and understand who I am and where I'm going. The mercy and grace of God is that Christ Jesus himself bore our iniquities set before God. He bore our secret sins that stood in his presence. And through Christ, we get his steadfast love that meets us in the morning. As verse 14 says, the toil and the trouble of Christ allows us to trust God with the toil and trouble that we navigate in our life. Because he ultimately bore the great penalty and the great cost of our sin. This radically reorients our perspective as we approach life. It enables us to live in the shadow of God's goodness. His greatness can cause us to shrink back or to draw near. Yesterday, I was in the city. My son and I went on a bit of an adventure, and we were walking down. We were walking through the city, and we walked past uh, uh, some skyscrapers, and it was pretty warm. And I, I, we, we walked right in, under the shadow of a probably 20 or 30-story building, and it felt, I mean, you get, under, you get in that shadow and it feels 15, 20 degrees cooler. So refreshing. You're protected from the sun beating down on you. The one who trusts in, the one whose heart is, is, is knit to the work that Christ has done, the one who by faith 
has believed in and taken hold of his death, saying, his death in my place, I'm giving him my rebellion against God, and I'm going to rest in him and live by his grace. Allow him to do with me whatever he sees fit. The one who does that stands in not standing far away from that sun that would bake upon them and reveal all of the secret sin, reveal all of the iniquity that stands before God, but this is the one who is brought into the shadow to rest in nourishing, replenishing grace. Grace of Christ who endured the just wrath of God that we might live and not only live like survive, like escape by the skin of our escape by the skin of our teeth, such a weird saying, but that we might live and experience everlasting joy and pleasure of God. This invites us to a life of wisdom and of wonder. Verse 12, wisdom. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you want to be more wise? Ask the Lord to teach you to number your days. Ask the Lord to help you to see that in life we are not ones who have arrived. But we are in the waiting room awaiting that journey to Him. That in life the, sun, the, the, the setting sun of life is actually a coming sunrise through which we will enter into a day that will never end in the presence and joy of our King. This produces wonder in us as God transforms us as a people. He gives us gladness for as long as we have been afflicted for all the evil we have seen. He reveals His work to His servants, His glorious power to their children. It gives us wonder and it gives us wisdom knowing who God is, who we are, what this means, enables us to understand Him. To plan and to orient our lives around His purposes. John Calvin, on this passage, exhorted us to number our days. He said, even He, who is most skillful in arithmetic, and who can precisely and accurately understand and investigate millions of millions, is nevertheless unable to count his own life. It is surely a monstrous thing that men can measure all distances without themselves, that they know how many feet the moon is distant from the center of the earth, what space there is between all of the planets, and yet, for all that man can do in determining this, he cannot number his own years. What can be greater proof of madness than to ramble about without proposing to oneself any end? Perhaps a good exercise for you this Memorial Day weekend would be to pause and to quietly reflect, to take a few moments out of your schedule and think of your own mortality, of the precious commodity of time. But then to look and see that He meets us and redeems our days with grace. He shows us his mercy. And then in verses 16 and 17, he shows us the freedom of this reality. 
verses 16 and 17, Moses cries out, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses is praying, Lord, let us not feel as if the sand is always slipping through our fingers. But let us take hold of you and grasp you by your grace and never let go. It is so much more reassuring to believe that life, the world, as we know it, will simply go on forever. As McGrath said, that we'll be able to hold on to all the glittering prizes we win during life. But the reality is different. The disclosure of our mortality is the strange work of God. The finding of eternal life through that disclosure is a proper work. Anxiety about death proves the gateway to eternal life. It forces us to ask the questions to which the gospel has the answers. My friend, the invitation of the gospel, the invitation of of Roman of Psalm 90 is to wrestle with our mortality and then find the grace to proceed forward through our Savior who endured death. Who he knew his days were numbered. And he endured the penalty and the pains of the cross upon our sins and not his own. He was not sinful. And yet through his death, we have the invitation to live. We have the freedom to live in the nearness to God, to dwell in the shadow of his goodness. Because he has proven himself faithful time and again. And because he invites us to see his glory. And to then know that however many years we have, when our eyes close finally, they will open to see the glorious Savior. And we will see his face. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote a hymn based on Psalm 90, O God, our help in ages past. Watts dealt with terrible illness and pain throughout much of his adult life, and yet he wrote this hymn about casting himself upon the Lord. He wrote, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure, Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Understand God's greatness and your smallness. Think on it. Meditate on it. And then resolve that you will draw near to his goodness. And you do so through Christ.